God's covenant with David. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherds my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, but you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. You are a sovereign God and sovereign King. You look down and you see the nations. There is nothing that's hidden from your eyes and who are, from, are, are deceived Nations cannot deceive your wisdom. Father, but you are a God who is near and compassionate and tender-hearted. You're gracious. Father, and you have given us your promises. Promises not based on our goodness, for there is nothing good have I. But Father, your promises are based upon the heart, your heart and your goodness, for you are a good God. Father, we love you because you first loved us. Father, move in our hearts through the proclamation of your word that we could see Christ, our King, our everlasting King, who reigns in heaven and who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that love. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Words have power to shake, uh, shape the course of nations and families and kingdoms. 
We know this in the United States with, because we quickly hear words like, give me liberty and give me death, and we resonate with Patrick Henry's call to revolution. Lincoln said four score and seven years ago, and we hear his call to restoration. It was JFK who said, ask not what the country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It was Reagan who said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And it was Martin Luther King who said the words, I have a dream. Words can shape people and nations. And this morning, I want to look at words that have shaped the course of all human history and all of eternity here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise of David. The Davidic covenant, and probably it may be some words that, a promise that you're not familiar with. You know the promises that we've had of the snake crusher in the garden and the promise to Abraham, but you may not know the profound impact this promise God gave to David. We're going to look this morning at three ways at this promise. One, it's an eternal promise. Two, that's uh, a defiled kingdom. And three, has an unexpected king. A an eternal promise, a defiled kingdom, and an unexpected king. We start by looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7, an eternal promise of God. Just set the stage a little bit to be able to understand that David is in a point in his kingdom where he has found rest from his enemies. The, probably the battles with the Philistines, we know the stories of David and, and, and uh, knocking down the giants and the, the many things, but now God in his power has fought for David and provided peace and rest in his kingdom. And David is thinking and contemplating and he is remembering the law of God and he decides he wants to build the Lord a house. We understand that to be a temple. It could have been, in, uh, the, harking back to the law of Moses, that says this, but when you go over to the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from your enemies, and the very blessing, David is enjoying the sweetness of this rest, so that when you live in safety, then the place that the Lord will choose, make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I commanded you. The Lord, David was thinking, no longer needed a tent to wander through the wilderness with his people. David wanted to build the Lord a house, a grand and glorious, majestic temple so he, where he could stay with his people. The people could come and worship him and give praise to God who had given them rest. And David, there was probably, as he contemplated things, a level of guilt because he realized as he looked at his beautiful palace made of cedar, he looked at the, uh, at the tabernacle, the tent of God, and he realized that God was far greater and deserved a far greater building, a house for the Lord to dwell with his people. But the Lord had a greater plan. A greater plan than a house made of cedar that would serve a people for a period of time. God had a greater plan to bless all the nations of the world with a king. 
Notice verses 4 through 7. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, who had spoke hastily in saying, all that you say, go do. That sounds like a fabulous idea. The Lord came to him and clarified, that's not my plan. That's not my desire. And he said, the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought my people out of Egypt from Israel. But I have been moving around in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to, serve, uh, to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord did not object to this tent that wandered in the wilderness for 400 years. Though David was a man after God's own heart, he was not the man who would build the Lord a house. Because the Lord would have a house that he would dwell in by God's grace. But he's never asked as they were departed. The Lord says, I don't need a house. Quite frankly, I am far greater than any house and any beauty and every glory. No matter how spectacular, a house on earth cannot contain me. We see this in the, the very words of um, Solomon, who built that uh, house, has said, but the Lord, but will the God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. There was no rush. Though David had a great sense of urgency to do what he perceived would honor God, God was not interested in that. God was interested in something greater that he would do in, through David despite of David, after David. Ocean Park, sometimes we confuse our ambition with the will of God. We conceive, uh, we, we conceive lofty, pro, uh, lofty projects and goals and missions, and we think we'll honor the name of the Lord, and we convince ourselves that God needs our projects and our imaginations and our, our things that we develop and we, we rubber stamp them. But what the Lord calls us to do is to trust what he is doing. Often it's like a gracious mother who allows her children to help her cook when in reality all they're doing is making a bigger mess in the kitchen. Have you ever, fathers, gone in the backyard and raked leaves with your children? They're not doing a very good job. In fact, they're making a hash of what you are making beautiful piles, but they're throwing those beautiful piles up in the air. The Lord does not need us, but he chooses by his gracious will to come and invite us to be a part of what he's doing. And this is what the Lord would do by His grace. He would make a, promises, a promise to David, an unsolicited promise, an irrevocable promise that would change the course of human history that originated not in the vision of David, but in the heart of God, who is gracious. Notice verses 8 and 9 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus said the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, a forgotten shepherd, the eighth son of Jesse, from following the sheep, and that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. The Lord gently reminded David that everything he had, and everything he experienced, and every good thing he had, had been provided by the gracious hand of God. 
All we have needed, uh, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, as the hymn writer says. David knew this to be true. He had gone from that forgotten kid over in that field over there. Now he was a prince in the palace of God, all by the grace of God. By God's grace, he had defeated lions and defeated bears and he defeated Philistine giants. He had eluded jealous and maniacal kings, ruthless mercenaries and enemy uh, armies. He was preserved from the dangers of enemies and traitors and himself by the grace of God. Everywhere and everything that David had done was guided and protected and prospered by the hand of God, despite David at all. Most times, God had been Emmanuel, God with David. Now the Lord would preserve David's people for eternity. Notice this continuing, by my grace I have preserved you and I will continue this in verse 10 and 11. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. We, as in our promises that we've been looking, hearken back to Abraham and Moses and Eve and Adam. And I will appoint you a a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. God's promise to David was built upon upon the promise he had given to his father Abraham nearly a millennial earlier. A blessing that God promised would flow through Abraham to all the nations of of the earth. God promised a name. And now David was a part of that conduit which the blessings of God would flow to the nations. God furthered that promise and promised David that God would grant a place that his people will dwell securely by giving them rest from their enemies. This very security, uh, security David sought for his people in building this house for the Lord would be accomplished by the very Lord he wanted to build a house for, that Lord would build a house for David. Do you see the radical ta- change of, of, of turn of tables? David is trying to do something for the Lord, but God's grace, the Lord is going to do something for David. But how? How would the Lord ensure a name and a place for his people? This is where the promise of the Davidic covenant comes that radically changes the course of human history, and we see an eternal throne. By this eternal throne, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Notice at the end of verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord would make you a house. A house would be built, but it would last be, um, be built by the Lord. It would be a dynasty, a house, not a palace, but a, a family, a dynasty of kings that would not be snuffed out like Saul's dynasty was, but it would continue. Notice verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
See, this promise God gave David was beyond himself. God would raise up David's offsprings to reign after him. The kingdom would not be torn from his family like it was torn from Saul. God's promise was not subject to coups and political wisdom or international affairs. It wasn't dependent on David's military might his political wisdom, or his international alliances. God could rest, or David could rest knowing that God would provide for David's people and David's house and David's family. The throne of David would be far greater than David himself. Not only would, in verse 12, a dynasty be promised, but also an eternal throne. Verses 13 through 15. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Promise was not simply fulfilled with the coronation of Saul, um, of David's great and wise son Solomon, who would build the house a, a few years later. For the promise of God, there was a greater throne that was coming and a greater Solomon who would sit on an eternal throne that was secured by God himself. This dynasty, this house of David, this this throne, line of the throne, would have a special, unique relationship with God, that it would be an intimate, personal relationship. God would be the father, and this king would be the son. There would be intimacy. But we realize that not only that, but there would be discipline. That when this sons, Solomon, and others would come, God would discipline his sons for he is a good father who cares and disciplines his son, but he would not forsake his sons. God was working. His hesed, his covenant faithfulness, he would not forget. Notice verse 16, and your house, these words that um, uttered by the prophet Nathan that would change the course of history and eternity themselves, and your house and your kingdom shall be made secure forever before me. Your throne shall be made sure forever. These history-altering words ensued that later generations would rejoice knowing that David's throne was secure. His people would be safe, knowing that it could not be overthrown, abdicated, or forfeited because it was eternally secured by the very hand of God. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love would hold the king, the descendant of David. Now some of you know where I'm going. Hold on. There's a lot between 2 Samuel and uh, the coming of the king. Ocean Park, it is the heart of man. This is the heart of man who knows the response of David. Notice verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? It is the heart of man who knows who he is and who she is and has experienced the mercy and grace of God. 
they utter in sheer astonishment for the grace of God. Who am I? David was overwhelmed that he knew that there was nothing that he had done to deserve it, but it was grace from north to south, east to west, inside to outside. This, brothers and sisters, is the heart of God. Very words that Charles Wesley wrote in his song that we sing. And can it be? Who am I that I should gain an interest in my Savior's love? Why died he for me who caused his pain? For me to him who death pursued. Another writer says we shake our fists and said crucify him. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God should die for me? Those who know what they deserve and understand what God has done, they declare who am I at the incredible promises of God. Promises like we talked in Sunday school this morning that we must cling to in times of struggle, in times of darkness, in times of difficulty, in times of doubt. We must cling to the promises of God or we shake our hands and say, where are you, God? God is working and is moving. Notice the promise that David cling to of an eternal promise of eternal king, but also we see the record of David's dynasty was a defiled kingdom. Didn't take long for David to realize, um, us to realize that David's dynasty would, if it was continue, to continue, would have to be God's work. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It wasn't until I think chapter 11 where David and his line began to fail miserably. David sinned egregiously against Bathsheba, and he failed to protect his daughter Tamar. He lost the hearts of his people to his angry son Absalom, and he watched helplessly as his family destroyed themselves. David was a man after God's own heart, but he could not keep his family together during his life, much less the generations that would come after him. Solomon started off well. He asked for wisdom rather than gold and riches. But um, even though he built the great temples and the presence of the Lord filled it, he also, uh, the fear of the Lord, did not fill his heart. Solomon says in 1 Kings 11, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as Father had David had done. We see Solomon married many wives and his wives um, lured his heart away to other gods and he built temples and worship uh, of those gods. After Solomon, the king was divided north and south, ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. The Davidic dynasty dwindled to two, but God was faithful. Of the 20 kings that followed Solomon in the line of David, only seven did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of the deep darkness of sin and rebellion, though the promise of God to David was not forgotten, though the rod of discipline struck them as was promised and that sent them into a distant land in exile. Lord did not forget his promises to David of never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness. In exile, as the people wept, 
their greatest fears had been realized. Their enemies had defeated them and had ripped them from the land that God had promised them. The temple was destroyed. The walls were broken. David's house was destroyed. David's throne was empty. God's covenant people cried out. Had God forgot them? They cling to the promises even when their dark fears stalked them. Psalm 89, you, see, you hear the desperation of the people of God, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. And how could it not be? There was no king on the throne. They were in a distant land under a distant king who was corrupt and vile and did not worship the true God, but God had a promised rest for his people. Even though right now their enemies were defeating them and humiliating them. They were living in a foreign land. The throne of David lay in the dusk, forsaken and forgotten. There was no one to take up the diadem of David. It was hopeless. Living in a strange land. Enemies of the people serving foreign gods. But there were voices. The voices of the faithful prophets calling out in the midst of darkness. In that day, Amos says, in that day I will raise up the booth of David, the house of David, the dynasty of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up the ruins and rebuild in the days of old. Isaiah cried out, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of David when it looks like the great mighty oak of David had been cut down to a stump and died and forgotten, there would uh, spring a shoot. And the words of Micah, but you, O Bethlehem, was too little to be among the, the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth one who is be a ruler in all Israel. From the smoldering remains of David's defiled kingdom, a faithful king would rise, a greater Solomon, a greater David, the offspring of the woman who would crush the heads of the, of the serpent, the descendants of Abraham who would bring the blessings of God to all the nations, the son of David who would rule with grace and with truth. The promises of God had not been forgotten, even though the perspective of his people was marred and downtrodden. Despite a generation languishing in exile, despite the temple lying in ruins in Jerusalem, despite having no king to uh, to sit on David's throne, a king would rise from the broken remnants of David to sit on that throne again. For the steadfast love of the Lord, the Hesed, had not been forgotten, for God himself had promised an eternal king. An eternal promise, a defiled kingdom, and an unexpected king. After the exile, the people returned to the promised land. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, and Ezra rebuilt the temple, though it was a shadow of Solomon's temple, and the people wept when they saw the great disparity between the two. Yet there's never a sign that the the Spirit of God ever returned to the temple. And the voice of the Lord went silent for 400 years after Malachi uttered the words, 
and written in his prophecy, the son of righteousness would rise with healing in his wings. Imagine the people wondered, has God forgotten us? Have we been forsaken? Is this the end? But God was not done with his people. He remembered his promises. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's on page 855 of your pew Bibles. If you brought your own Bible, uh, it's in the New Testament. You can go to the table of contents. It's the third book of the New Testament. Setting of this, it's chapter, the, the first chapter, chapter one. You, Luke, the narrator, brings us to the backwater Israel in a God-forsaken town named Nazareth, a place where people said, can anything good come from Nazareth? They were simple people. The angel Gabriel came from the very throne room of God and was sent to announce the, to a virgin woman that the Lord had not forgotten the promises to, uh, to Abraham, to Eve, and mostly to David. Notice in Luke 1.26, do not be afraid, Mary. It's not every day that an angel shows up at the, in your room trying to figure out what's going on. Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he shall call his name Jesus, which means God saves. And there was no doubt that these people need to be saved. Notice, significant of who Jesus would be. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give, him, give to him the throne of who? His father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will be the Lion of Judah. Genesis chapter 49. And of his kingdom there will be what? No end. The Lord was about to do something beyond what David, some few millenniums before, could never ask or imagine. That a king would be born in the line of David. A king would inherit David's throne. A king would bring peace to all who took shelter in his kingdom. That king had a forerunner and his name was John the Baptist. And when Gabriel departed from Mary and went to Zechariah, Zechariah didn't believe. And his mouth was silent till the child was born. And then his lips were opened and he could speak. And notice in Luke 1, 68 and 69 that we read responsively today. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation. A horn is power, authority, might for us. Where? In the house of his servant, David as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies. Jesus, the promised son of David, was born to rescue his people from the bondage of their sin. Jesus was born to set his people free from the dominion of death. Jesus was born to bring life, light to a people that were struggling in darkness. Jesus was the unexpected king who inaugurated an upside-down kingdom, not based on power and authority and privilege, but an upside-down kingdom where young, forgotten women and barren old women and shepherds and forgotten people, the lame, 
the poor, the weak, the refugee have a place in the kingdom of God. Not by their abilities, not by their power, not by their might, but by the grace of the King David who sits on the throne whose name is Jesus. Jesus was an unexpected king who came to rescue his people from the bondage of their enemies. Our first and foremost greatest enemy is sin and death. And what makes Jesus' birth so unexpected that he was already a king? David was born as the eighth son of Jesse, the forgotten one. Jesus was the only begotten son of the father. David was forgotten in the fields, but Jesus was honored as Lord of creation. David tended his tiny little flock of sheep, but Jesus holds all of creation together. The magnitude of the divine Son of God now coming and being held by a no-name woman living in the suburbs of a no-name town because the grace and mercy of our Lord had not forgotten his promises to David. This very king that of Lord of creation that married held was he who was in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He now was held in Mary's arms. And nobody knew he was there. Jesus didn't need to be born to be made a king. He was already king of creation. Born thy people to deliver. Born a king, a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom breed. Come thou long expected Jesus. Jesus was born to rescue his people who had wandered beyond the safety of his kingdom and now were powerless to return because the shackles of sin and death not only bound their bodies, but their hearts and their minds. They had no desire to go back to the good, true, beautiful kingdom and his king because sin had so insidiously corrupted the hearts and natures. There is no righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. The heart of man does not desire the things of the Lord. The gospel calls all, but none come. Because our nature has been so corrupted by sin. If salvation is to occur, God must come to his people. In fulfilling the promises that were given to the woman that a champion would come to crush the enemies of God, that were given to Abraham that the nations would be blessed, that were given to David that a king, a a son would sit on an eternal throne. Jesus was born to rescue his people who had wandered far. Jesus wrote himself into the story to redeem those who were held captive by sin and death. Turn, if you will, how did Jesus do this? How did he accomplish this? 
Turn, if you will, to John chapter 19. It's the next book over, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 19, it's on 905 of your pew Bible. Set the stage again. This is some 30, 33-ish years after Jesus' birth. He has gone through three years of, uh, of uh, earthly ministry where he's teaching and he's saying, this is what it means, this is who I am, this is what it means to be my disciple. And now it says the good shepherd lays his life down willingly to redeem the sheep. And John, as he's writing, is leading us to this incredible revelation of who God is and most of the people did not even see it. Their bitter, sarcastic, spiteful hearts did not have eyes to see or ears to hear or hearts that love the Son of God, born of Mary, descendant of David, who would sit eternally on the throne. Notice verse 14. The crowds are clamoring for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate is wavering on whether he's going to allow Jesus to be crucified, and he turns to the crowd for relief but finds none. Verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation, and the Passover was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The long-awaited Son of David came to David's city to redeem David's people, to be the conduit which all the nation of the world would be blessed through him. It was always the plan to go and reach the nations and bring them into the kingdom, to crush the head of the serpent and the enemies of God. Rather than honor, the king of David was scorned. Rather than tribute, he was jeered. Rather than glory, he was shamed. Yet the Lord of creation who could call down mighty angels, the heavenly hosts that sing, glory to the newborn king, were on guard and ready to come and destroy those who were crucifying their king, their Lord, their master. But Jesus, the eternal king of David, who had come not for to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, never uttered the word. But he came to redeem his people from the exile of sin that they found themselves in by satisfying the wrath of God. And a few verses later in John 19, Jesus utters the cry, It is finished. The king laid his life down for his people. We know that Christ's mission was successfully accomplished. This was not some tragic end to a good life. This was not 
Judas being victorious. This was Jesus, sovereign God, while the nations raged, using their anger and their bitterness to lay down his life and praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The very Lord and King of creation was being destroyed by his creation as the only means to save his creation. And this is why we know that Jesus did what he said he did and accomplished what he said he accomplished and finished what he said he was finished. Three days later, the king arose. And then as we declare in the Apostles' Creed that Orthodox Christians for the last two millennium have said he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living of the dead. We often overlook the ascension of Jesus as some sort of heavenly mode of transportation, but actually it was his coronation as king of creation who had died to bring his people into his kingdom. R.C. Sproul in his book Promises of God puts it this way. He says, Jesus went to the right hand of God and the purpose of his ascent was to go to his coronation, his investiture as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. God crowned him, not just as one more king in the line of King David, but as the king of kings and lord of lords by, to whom all the nations of the world are given. He reigns. His reign was announced by God in the new covenant, not to, not to last 400 years like the dynasty of David, but forever and ever, to which the church cries, hallelujah. If you've ever listened to or watched or attended Handel's Messiah, you know the greatest song that Handel wrote was hallelujah. And what happens to the congregation when they begin the words of hallelujah? Praise the Lord. The congregation rises to recognize their great king. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah. I won't sing it. Maybe the music team. Can you pull that off like in the next five, ten minutes? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the promise that was given to David. He is the eternal king who has defeated our greatest enemy, sin and death. He is the eternal king who promises rest in the midst of our trouble. He is the eternal king who is working all things together for the good of those who trust him. He is the eternal king who reigns omnipotent, powerfully, steadfast, and full of loving kindness. The question I have for you this morning, Ocean Park, is he your king? Will you submit to the king who sits on the promised throne of David who is held by the Almighty God? Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, he who is not with me is against me. Who, who does not uh, gather with me scatters. There are three sets of people, probably more, but three. There are those who are listening this morning and thinking, I am full of malarkey. You don't know what you're talking about. Do you see what's going on in our world? We think 
if God is real, if God is there, he would do something. As we saw in Sunday school, God did do something. He fulfilled the promises of David, of a king who would come, and he died to redeem his people from their sin, to give them rest and security, and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. All those things that you scoff at and you say, these things can't continue if God is real. They won't. God is coming and he has promised, behold, I am making all things new. In the kingdom of God, in Mark 1.17, Jesus says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Repent and believe. And repent is not just to feel sorry for your sins or to feel like I got caught with my hands in the cookie jar or to not like the consequences of my sin, so I'm going to live a moral life. So I can be free from the nastiness that other people have and to feel good about myself. Repent is to change allegiances and to say, I no longer serve my God and uh, myself as my king in the world, but I serve Christ alone. I I renounce my throne and I fall at the feet of Jesus. Repent and believe. Trust the gospel. Jesus reigns. And he's working and his perspective is far bigger. His wisdom is far deeper. And he sees those things in your heart that caused you angst and anger. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. And the recompense is in his hands. His vengeance is his. His might and power is perfect. His wisdom is complete. Far greater than what you are. Far greater than all your uh, naysaying. Jesus is coming to make things right, and he calls, fall at my feet and serve me and my kingdom, and I will give you rest. To the nominal believer who um, sits and hears the promises of God and sleeps and is, is give, pays lip service to the kingdom, but their heart is not engaged, shake from your slumber, you are not safe. You think you're in the kingdom. But there is proximity that is closer to some of the more prodigal, but you are not a part of the kingdom. Even though you pay lip service, your heart is far from the Lord. Repent of your morality, your self-righteousness, and bow to the knees and bow your knees to the Almighty King and say, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And to those of you who are genuine believers who know, where else can I go, Lord? You have the keys to eternal life. The keys of the kingdom are in your hand, for you are the king. Seek first the kingdom, and he'll take care of all your needs. Obey his commandments, for his ways are good and sweet, and they lead to life. Proclaim the good news of great joy, that the king is come He has defeated our enemies and he is coming to vanquish them and push them aside. His death, his resurrection, and ascendance are reminders that he is coming. And there will be a day when we can all say, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It's not a Christmas song. It's a new millennial song when Christ will come. Christ came in his first advent to pay the penalty to redeem you from the kingdom of darkness. 
but he's not done yet. There is more to do. And he is coming to gather his people from every tribe and tongue and nation and defeat that enemy and that kingdom of darkness once and for all and to bring his people to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we rejoice and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus.